Ladies and gentlemen, how are you this morning? We've got some uh, snow in Lincoln still falling. Uh, anywhere from two to six inches in parts of Lincoln has fallen last night. And, of course, if you go south of Lincoln into southern Lancaster County and down towards the uh, southeastern corner, they've got a lot more snow down there, probably 10 to 12 inches. Hey, Jim, what's the weather supposed to be? What's it doing? It's snowing. And? I, I know you knew that. Uh, they're predicting another one to three inches of daytime accumulation today. And uh, we're in a winter storm warning until 6 p.m. Central Time. So I had kind of a Facebook uh, quiz last night. I said, guess how many inches we're going to get. And I said seven. So, so we're, we're basically about there. It seemed, it seemed a little bit stretched when I did that because people were saying like two and three. Yeah, I think we're almost there. Uh-huh. So I'm going to fire up the snowblower and uh, the Colborne manhood takes the streets and sidewalks <laughs> back today. No, it's because there's nobody else to do it. So you've, you've got that big, huge driveway to clear there too. So luckily, I've got this. This it's a snow thrower that does a pretty good job. Yeah, I've I got a hundred and fifty foot of cable that I spool out behind that thing. It's electric, and now, so will that cord reach to my house? No, <laughs> darn. But I have probably my daughter's house to to help with mm-hmm. today. Sure. So. Uh, I noticed that there was a big limb in my backyard down, so do be careful if you're outside today. Kind of keep uh, an awareness of, of trees and what's going on because we could have yeah. more limbs that fall. And the streets are slippery. Yeah, so I just almost got stuck in the parking lot mm-hmm. out here. Um, I should have brought my Jeep. You know, I should have just fired the old Jeep. Yeah, that would have been fun. Scott Colborne with Jim Shorty and Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Our show today, we're going to start with Charlene and Pet Talk. And she's with the Capital Humane Society. Then we go to Paula Harris, UFOs, ETs, and exopolitics. And then we're going to have, uh, for the first time, Robert Moss. He's the author of multiple books, including Mysterious Realities, A Dream Traveler's Tales from the Imaginal Realm. Let's go straight to Charlene at the Capital Humane Society. Hi, Charlene. Hi, how are you? Doing great. Have you uh, cleared walks yet? Uh, they have been cleared, and we are grateful for that. There is a lot of snow out there. Yes, there is. So um, it's you can get around, just uh, plan approaching intersections, slow down, and uh, watch the inclines because you can get stuck really easy. That's right. I'm here at the CapitalHumaneSociety.org website, and I saw Working Cats. What's that about? That is a great program that we have to help find homes for cats that may be better suited for an outdoor lifestyle. Of course, they still need uh, appropriate accommodations so that they are safe and uh, warm. Um, But sometimes we do get cats in that may be semi-feral or are not using their litter box appropriately. And so an outdoor lifestyle might be good for them, a working cat where where they're helping you with mousing um, and other things like that. And we do have an online application for our Capital Humane Society Working Cat program. So you can just go right to our website and see if that might be a good program for you. This is Charlene, and we're talking about the website CapitalHumaneSociety.org. I've got cats and kittens up for adoption. There are some awesome cats there today. 
Yes, yeah. we all we have so many cuties, and I was going to start with Buddy. Buddy is black and white. He's about four years old, a domestic short hair. He has the long white whiskers. Uh, he is a front declawed cat seeking a wonderful family who's going to keep him safe as an indoor-only companion. Um, he's going to be a really nice cat for whoever chooses to take him home. We have a distinguished gentleman cat in his tuxedo with uh -huh. a little patch of white on his chin. Very attractive kitty. Yeah, beautiful eyes. The Budster, Buddy, he's looking right at you in that picture. Take a look at his picture at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. Buddy's Buddy is... Abilene, and oh. she's seven years old, a spade female, all white. All Got, white. Yeah, a little pink on her nose and a little pink in her ears. Very, very pretty. A curious and charming and ready to be your adorable sidekick. I, I had a white kitty once, and she was the most lovable thing. Yeah, she looks like she just wants to snuggle in your lap mm -hmm. and purr and have a great life with you. Okay, we've got great cats so far. Buddy, Abilene, and... Next up is Ruby. And Ruby's been here for quite a while, and we just don't know why. She's just a gentle, sweet soul, about a year old, a domestic short hair, has tabby markings. Uh, she can be a little bit reserved when you first meet her, um, but she is just a dignified kitty, and once she's comfortable, she'll bat at her toys and play and want to sit in your lap. So if you're cat savvy, we hope you'll consider oh, wow. Ruby. She is pretty. Uh-huh. Yeah, she reminds me of Sinanda, my old cat. Ruby, she's looking right at you, kind of inquisitive, like, huh, what? <laughs> yep. And she'd love to talk with you. You can do that today or tomorrow. Here's Charlene with hours open. We are open today and tomorrow at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center from 11 to 5.30. And everybody, just take it easy out there. Um, just plan your, your route. It's going to be okay. You're going to get there. Just allow plenty of time. Next up is dogs for adoption. We have three dogs, so we'll talk about them in alphabetical order. <laughs> so we have baby girl looking for just the right family, somebody who can bring out the best in her. She is a shepherd pit bull mix, about two years old. Again, looking for someone who has time to provide plenty of exercise and training, and then she'll be your loyal friend. Uh, what a great dog for those brisk walks or those slow jogs. This would be a fun, fun girl. Baby girl, she waits for you. Next up is little Mopsy. <laughs> Pretty cute name for a terrier, a little neutered male, about a year old. He is a happy young dog, ready to play. Um, he was fine out in the, a little tiny walk in the snow this morning to take care of his business. So if you're looking for a real cutie and can provide him with proper care, ask about Mopsy. Mopsy, and Mopsy's buddy is Stormy. Tell us about Stormy. Stormy is a beautiful pit bull. Uh, her picture is so cute there with her ears all perked up. She's about three years old, 41 pounds, a very strong and exuberant dog, looking for somebody who's experienced, who will work with her, and then she'll be a very fine companion. Stormy, show us your ears. <laughs> yes. You're like Antenna. Baby girl, Mopsy, and Stormy. Uh, a great weekend to adopt a dog or a cat. These great dogs are waiting for you. And here's Charlene with hours open today and tomorrow. 
our Pylock Pet Adoption Center is open on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 5.30. Charlene, thanks so much for our relationship that we have with you and the Capital Humane Society, and thank you for your continued great work. Oh, thank you for everything. We really appreciate it. Okay, have a great rest of the weekend. You too. Bye-bye. Charlene and friends at the Capital Humane Society make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. And a uh, few limbs are falling in Lincoln, Nebraska. Snow is still coming down. Uh, and uh, it could continue through the early afternoon here. We could pick up another two or three inches uh, besides what's already down here. So it, you can get out and about uh, if you're going up hills and you got to stop on an incline. You want to plan that because you may not get started again. So uh, just take things easy and allow plenty of time and you'll just be fine. So, Jim, uh, how's your week been? Uh, pretty good. Put in a full day of work for the first or full week of work for the full, first time this year and survived that. You probably so, felt uh, different. It did. So busy, busy, which is good. So we're drinking Sulawesi coffee. Yeah, it's, it's good on this snowy morning. Folks, what's in your cup? What do you guys and gals like to uh, drink when you listen to the Exploring and Unexplained Phenomena program? Sounds like a good poll for Facebook. Yeah, are you a, a coffee drinker or a tea drinker? Uh, maybe hot chocolate. This is a morning yeah. too for a hot chocolate. That too. I used to mix coffee and hot chocolate. I mm-hmm. like that. Then I used to take just pieces of chocolate and eat that with my coffee. I like that. <laughs> I had kind of a mocha mix that I used to use of uh, a half non-dairy creamer and half cho- hot chocolate mix. Yeah. And uh, put a little bit of that in my coffee, and that was yummy. We've got our next guest, Paula Harris from Boulder, Colorado. And Paula, is it snowing where you're at? Yeah, it's coming down. It's, it's <laughs> ever so fine. It's like powder, but it is snowing. Yeah, this is a pretty big storm that we're getting a lot to here. My friend, how you been? <laughs> I've been doing well. I've been moving, so I'm kind of sore. I'm moving to a bigger place where I can have an office. And I think it's very important that I have an office. I have over 300 books, and I didn't even know where they all were until I had to remove them. And then when I moved them, I could put them in categories. You know, all the remote viewing books go one place. All the contact books go another place. All the crop circle books go in another place. And so then now I know where everything is. (laughs) And uh, hopefully, young lady, you've got some help doing that, too, because that's a big job. Uh, a little bit of help, but it it, it kind of took its toll on my body. It's, uh, <laughs> it's moving is very, very stressful, but it's also very purging. So I got to throw away a lot of stuff that I really didn't need. Uh, I want to ask you a couple of questions about the conference. I also want to ask you a question about, I know that you just attended the screening of the movie on Bob Lazar. And uh, uh, no more. Um, I didn't attend the screening. I I couldn't go to L.A. I was invited to two screenings, actually, Bob Lazar and um, the um, the History Channel uh, opening of Project Blue Book. Oh, because okay. Paul Hynek, yeah, yes. Paul Hynek had invited me to that. That's Alan's youngest son. I'm sorry, I got confused and, there, Paul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 what I did was, as far as this, I saw the movie, uh, a Bob Lazar movie, which I think you saw too. It was online, right? Or you had to get it. 
Yeah, I've 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 uh, seen the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw the movie, and then as far as Project Blue Book, I watched it from home because I couldn't fly to Los Angeles for that. But um, these are two very important important disclosure kinds of uh, media events that have happened in the last you know couple of months. Uh, Lazar talks about having worked at uh, uh, S four and Area fifty one. And as a physicist, helping to uh, understand the propulsion system and the technology and trying to reverse engineer these alien craft, um, our colleagues such as Stanton Friedman uh, have over the years uh, uh, questioned his credibility in terms of trying to find documents that support what he says. Uh, but the gentleman who just did the film, uh, spent a lot of time with Bob Lazar and believes that he's telling the truth. Yes, well, that's tr- Jeremy Corbell, who did the movie, um, about Bob Lazar years ago. And when I went to the Little Alien Inn, um, I could speak to the people there. The Little Alien Inn is just outside of Area 51. So Rachel I went to Area I've been to Area 51, not inside, but to the gate and talking to the people around there. <laughs> and in the Little Alien Inn, I think Bob was married to her, her daughter, and I talked to her personally. See, the, I'm going to be honest with you, uh, Scott. Uh, uh, Stanton Freeman does no field research. You can't look at documents. You think the government's going to put out a document saying somebody was working with UFOs? That's ridiculous. Um, the uh, the it, documents do not prove it. You have to go on location. And I even spoke to Bob Lazar. I spoke to him when he was in Sandia Labs. I invited him to Italy. And what he told me was he was sick and tired of the UFO community. Yes. He didn't want to deal with UFOs, even if I brought him to Florence, because I had invited him to come to Florence, where I didn't think people were going to be as cruel to him as they've been over the years. Bob Lazar did work at Area 51. Bob Lazar did bring his friends to see these uh, craft um, he'd bring his friends in his car over the the hills near Area 51 to watch craft um, move around. Now, the craft that Bob Lazar brought them to see was our stuff that we had back-engineered. And uh, I talked to Bob Lazar's mother-in-law. I know everything he says is true, but he got such a backlash from the UFO community, which is insane, uh, they do it with everybody, including Michael Wolf. They did it with everybody. Uh, that uh, Colonel Corso, they, you know, Stanton went after him like crazy. Um, the thing is that our own researchers are the greatest debunkers of of real stuff without actually doing the work. So Bob Lazar is telling the truth. He did work at Sandia. Everything he said was true, including all the attempts on his life. If he wasn't real. Why would he have so many attempts on his life? And then he just gave up and started his own company. He's a mini genius. Uh, so if people want to see that film. It, it got, I'm surprised Bob did it. I'm surprised yeah. Bob did the film because he's, he and his wife are sick and tired of all the criticism. Bob Lazar is a cool guy. He's got, Jim, he's got a jet-powered motorbike. Oh, neat. Oh, yeah. You ought to see this thing fire up. It's pretty darn cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, the second the second premiere then was the uh, Project Blue Book, which is a fictional account of Dr. Jalen Hynek and uh, his look at this phenomena. 
And do you expect well, good... Well, it's fictional, but the, the, the first case, uh, if people watched it, was the one that Rupelt, uh, you know, uh, who wrote one of the first books on, on, uh, on, on, on studying this uh, it, uh, from a pilot's point of view. Um, because the, the 701, and that's what, that was what James Fox's movie was going to be called, 701. I don't know if you know James Fox. He's a good friend of mine. He does the... Yeah, you I've, were there when James yeah, was I've there. Yeah, I met him and spent time in, with him. In Laughlin. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and those were 701 uh, files from the Blue Book uh, situation. And and that was the first one of the first ones where the pilot was chasing after the... Was, uh, and, and they said he was chasing after Venus. Uh, and so that was a fictionalized account because I never heard when the pilot came down that he that he had a song in his brain, you know, Fly Me to the Moon. Uh, and that part, all the paranormal part, the fact that that the, the pilot interacted with non-human intelligence and had those, you know, that song occurring over and over again, and uh, all that part, I think, could have been fictionalized, but it was important because uh, Alan was working with uh, Jacques Vallée, who was very interested in the paranormal. In other words, the the consciousness component of when you have a contact like that, weirdo stuff happens. Mm-hmm. So it was fictionalized in that it was exaggerated, but it wasn't fictionalized in that that Fargo, uh, North Dakota, or whatever it is case with the pilot is real. Uh, one of the th- I th- the legacies, and, and you're better apt to comment on this because you spent uh, so much time with Dr. Heineck, but one of the legacies that I think that he left us was here was a um, uh, professor emer- emeritus in astronomy from Northwestern University who uh, was uh, very skilled, very detailed, very intelligent, and he was hired by Project Blue Book to look in these cases and to uh, assist them ostensibly uh, in debunking them, coming up with reasons why. And as a scientist with an open, inquiring, intelligent mind, he was faced with an insurmountable problem that many of these reports could not be explained prosaically and naturally. And so he began to part company with those uh, debunkers and secret keepers and became an outspoken champion of the fact that this phenomenon is real. And Paula, you know that because you spent, what, six years with him? I spent six years with him, but he already changed by then, you know. Uh, He had already decided uh, after, you know, just before Close Encounters, uh, I think that came out in 70, 79, I'm not sure, but he had started the Center for UFO Studies and I uh, had seen Close Encounters and went to talk to him about the real stuff. And he wanted, the problem with all of these guys that do real good research is that he wanted funding for KUFOS, the Center for UFO Studies. I became a member of that. And, um, And also, he's the one that told me, because back then, when you're starting to study UFOs, you you think you're studying metal craft. You don't understand all the paranormal aspects of it, you know, the appearing and disappearing, the contact, the uh, telep- telepathy. You don't understand that because you can't go there. All you're thinking is that this is a metal craft in the sky, uh, which is much more than what it is. It's it's much more than metal craft in the sky. Mm-hmm. And um, 
So Alan was is a hero, Scott, because I consider anybody who has the ability to change their mind about something a hero. Uh, anybody that uh, has you know has a progression of thought where they thought things were one way and then they think that they come along. Like John Mack was also one of those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I consider them open-minded heroes because they don't have a preconceived notion. In terms of disclosure, you do also some important work uh, every November with the Starworks USA UFO Symposium. And you've got uh, almost kind of a triple header coming up here uh, uh, this coming uh, November in Laughlin, Nevada. Uh, you're going to have the oh, subject. Oh, it's, you're going to have the subject. It's amazing. Of, this is the best one ever, Scott. You're going to be amazed, and you're on my board, so. You know, this this is going to be so mind-blowing. People are not going to... I don't know what all happened either, because I brought together all the remote viewing people, Russell Targ, who worked at SRI with Uri, and then I called Uri in Israel, and I asked Uri if he would appear in, on Skype, and they're going to be reunited on the stage. They haven't talked to each other in eons. Uh, and Uri Geller doesn't say yes to uh, to anybody, and he said yes to me, provided his schedule uh, uh, provides it, because he's supposed to go to Tokyo around then. But, but you know, here I have Angela Thompson-Smith, who worked at, uh, for the military in, in remote viewing. I have Uri. I have, um, what's his name, uh, Russell Targ, as one group. Uh, of, and then I have Nick Pope, who's going to talk about remote viewing in, in Great Britain. So I have that group. And then I have... And I hope you interview him. He's coming to Boulder next week to speak. Jim Penniston and uh, Osborne, Gary Osborne, because Jim Penniston has just um, released a book called Rendlesham Enigma, where they have deciphered the code that was given to him in Rendlesham Forest so that it means something completely different um, from what the History Channel had in it. And Penniston, as you know, because you bonded with him when you saw him in Chicago, is really excited about this new book. So, And he he's the one who put his hand on the UFO at Rendlesham Forest and got the download. So I have that group, you know, the Rendlesham Forest decoding group. And then I have, uh, I'm bringing my uh, boss, Maurizio Bayada from Italy, and, and Richard Boylan to do the Michael Wolf case. And everybody in the world was curious about Michael Wolf, Cruvant, Catchers of Heaven. So we're opening up that case. So that conference is going to be jam-packed with information that everybody should know and everybody should want to know. And I'm adding that before February 1st, if people sign up, they save $80, which is a tremendous amount of money. Uh, for the whole entire 18 speakers, three days, two gala parties, and everything. So next year is going to be power-packed. So you can get information on the conference at starworksusa.com. And uh, do you think that our, our friend and colleague Grant Cameron's coming back? Oh, yeah, he's, he's part of that, too. Well, see, uh, it's Grant, a done deal, then. I always... If, 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 <laughs> Grant, know, Grant, if you're going to be there and Grant's going to be there... I'm going to be there. I mean, that you guys well, could just going to be there. Yeah, because Grant, um, Grant is on the same path. Grant, Grant yeah. is one of those people that changed his mind. Yeah. Remember, he said in his talk that he got a download 
that this is all about consciousness and because Grant spent his whole life doing presidential documents, you know, uh, presidential UFO. He was the presidential guy. Now he's doing uh, contact, uh, telepathy, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, he's a, a very engaging speaker, both face to face as well as on the stage. So, and uh, I, I, I so much enjoyed the uh, the uh, opportunity also to meet people. Uh, people from all over the world that came there. And I very much enjoyed that interaction as well as the, the presentations from the stage. So, uh, Paula, we're going to let you go, but I'm going to refer people to your website, uh, starworksusa.com. And Paula Harris, her website is P-A-O-L-A. That's paulaharris.com. And I hope you have a great rest of the weekend uh, and uh I hope that your moving goes well and your back bounces right back. <laughs> Thank you. I need it. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> okay. Uh, love from the Colborns and from the family here to you. All the best. All right. Thank you. You take care. Bye-bye, everybody. What an amazing woman. Uh, she is well, one of my idols. She, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's so important, Jim, to... Uh, champion people like Paula Harris who are not content to sit behind a computer monitor, uh, but they actually buy the airplane ticket, take the boat, drive the car, and they go to the location. They talk to the eyewitnesses. They, And then she's bringing together, as we heard, so many interesting speakers. That's going to be such a fun event. And she's met so many interesting people. She has oh, yeah. so, so many names and so much knowledge in that head. Yeah, grab grab some of her books because they're mm-hmm. they're basically a a travel log of her exploits and talking to these various people. And uh, it's all about education. And uh, if people like Dr. Heineck can do that conversion from being a debunker to being a supporter, uh, Grant Cameron converted from being interested in hardware to consciousness, there's a lot of exciting things that are going to be happening for us. So uh, let's take the bottom of the hour ID. We'll do those uh, announcements. And then we've got uh, a really interesting first guest, first time on the show, Robert Moss. Uh, he's the author of a brand new book that has a pretty mysterious cover, Jim. That's interesting. Uh, the book is titled Mysterious Realities, A Dream Traveler's Tales from the Imaginal Realm. That kind of looks like some of my dreams. Okay, well, we'll talk about that. <laughs> uh, folks, we'll be right back after these words on Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Hi dudes and dudettes, it's Carol Griswold from Women's Blues and Boogie on your community radio station, 89.3 FM, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hear from brand new KZUM voices from your community before they even have their show on the air. Tune in to Beta Radio every Saturday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on KZUM to hear from new KZUM programmers hosting shows that we hope to bring you regularly very soon. 
Beta Radio is a practice field of sorts for newly trained hosts to use their new studio skills and take their program idea for a spin. It's something new every week on Beta Radio, Saturdays from 3.30 to 5 here on KZUM. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock in one freezing cold rushing black mountain river. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. And uh, I'd like to have you folks uh, listening uh, join me for just a little bit, and I'd like to have you focus on sending healing thoughts and prayers and good vibes to our friend and colleague, Gary Gablehouse, who is facing some very serious health challenges with his warrior spirit, as always. Gary's in a hospital in Missoula, Montana. And so uh, join me right now in sending him some really good vibes. Here we go. Thank you so much for your prayers and good thoughts to our friend Gary Gablehouse. Attaboy, Gary. Attaboy. Our next guest is Robert Moss. He's the author of multiple books, and I'm holding this brand new one with this uh, wonderful, engaging cover, Mysterious Realities, A Dream Traveler's Tales, from the imaginal realm. He's the author of Conscious Dreaming, Dream Gates, and Sidewalk Oracles. Among many books on dreaming, shamanism, and alternate realities. He's a best-selling novelist, poet, independent scholar, and the creator of Active Dreaming, an original synthesis of dream work and shamanism. He leads creative and shamanic adventures all over the world, and his portal is mossdreams.com. Our first-time guest on the show, please welcome Robert Moss. Robert, good morning, sir. Hello, Scott. Good to be dreaming with you. Yes, sir. May I, may I call you by your first name? Oh, please do. 
so just as long as you don't call me Bob, if you do that, you'll hear the bear growling and you won't like it. <laughs> uh, Robert, uh, did you have a pivotal experience as a little boy or young man that helped determine part of your life, work, and path now as an adult? Yeah, I think my whole life has been shaped by what happened to me when I was very young. At the age of three, I was pronounced clinically dead. Oh my in a hospital in Hobart, Tasmania, in a bitter winter. And when I came back, the doctor said with some embarrassment, oh, your boy died and you came back, didn't he? I don't actually remember much of what happened when I checked out of the body at age three. I do remember that life seemed very different on this earth, and it was a bit hard to walk on this earth. Then it happened again at age nine, under emergency appendectomy. I was pronounced dead. That time, I seemed to have a whole life somewhere else in another world, and I brought back vivid memories, I mean, beautiful memories. I really enjoyed the life I seemed to be having somewhere else. But, you know, it's a conservative era in a military family in Australia mm-hmm. in the 1950s. No one is really ready to hear about these things, Scott. The first person I met who could validate what I had experienced and remembered was an Aboriginal kid from an indigenous culture that values dreaming very highly. And he would say to me when I talked about this kind of thing, oh, yeah, we do that. Pretty matter of fact, yeah, we do that. We get sick. We go and live with the spirit somewhere else, don't we? We get well, we come back. Sometimes we're the same, sometimes we're not. Then he'd say something very, very creative. He'd say, oh, my uncle, the artist, does the good pictures, the ones that are not for the tourists. By doing that, he goes to that other place and he comes back. So since my boyhood, Scott, I've understood that there are worlds beyond the physical. And I've understood that we can go there. And as life went on, I learned to do this without anything like the extremity of what is now called a near-death experience. By the way, my friend Raymond Moody had not written his book about, in which he coined the term near-death experience in those days. We didn't have a phrase, and I still don't really think of it as an NDE or a couple of NDEs. I think of it as dying and coming back, and that's, that's actually the title of my memoir about all of this, The Boy Who Died and Came Back. So that shaped me as a kid. It oriented me to understanding that dreaming in the broader sense, like the Aboriginal Indigenous sense, not just about bubbles from your subconscious, but about access to deeper worlds. I've understood that that is part of what is available in the human experience. I've known that all my life. Because of that boyhood, it's never been hard for me to enter what is now called lucid dreaming. It's never been hard for me to slip from one order of consciousness and reality to another. So that was a gift. For all those years spent in sickness and isolation, because I was a sickly kid for eight years in my boyhood, and I guess that probably shaped my ability to do the things that I do. Later on, there was a crisis in midlife, which is something that I'll talk about later if you want to, which put me on the track that I'm now following. It's the path of a dream teacher, which has no career path in our society. Yeah, Robert, uh, did you, uh, when you talk within your family, uh, you mentioned a military family, was there any acceptance or was there a, um, a response that, that indicated to you that this was a subject that was taboo? Uh, there was no attempt to make it taboo. My parents were very kind and generous person, people. I'm the only child. They were desperate to keep me alive, keep me in the family and do whatever was required. So they never trashed or rubbished or rejected my mm-hmm. experiences. They just did not know, in honesty, how to deal with it. How do you talk about this kind of thing if you don't have corresponding experiences and if you're living in a time when it's not, it's not really okay to talk about this kind of thing? The moment when I had their full, absolute attention was when I had a wakeful vision. I was walking home from school. I was aged 11 in Melbourne, Australia. And the sky opens and I see across half the sky a tremendous vision. It looks like a staff of burning gold or blazing bronze. And wrapped around it is a double serpent. And there are great wings coming off the top. 
And I drew a picture, and many people will, will recognize the kind of thing I'm talking about because it's well-known in mythology. Whether I knew it from books at that time, I didn't know. I was always a reader. I might have. But whether I knew it from books, I was not prepared to see half the sky open and see this immense, immense symbol, the caduceus, which is not technically the symbol of healing in Western culture, though it's often confused with it. But I knew that it was a healing symbol for me. And my parents listened, and they made me draw it and talk about it because I'd seen it with my mm. open eyes. And somehow... They were more ready to trust something seen with open eyes and something seen with eyes closed. And that vision preceded my last near-death experience in childhood. I was not pronounced clinically dead this time, but I was rushed to hospital with pneumonia in both lungs and was very close to dying. And after that, I came back. It's as if the, the vision was given to me on the eve of a final crisis of illness, after which I could return into something resembling a normal life in the body, in the physical world. Mm -hmm. um, Robert... Uh the work I think that you're doing is, is so very important. Um, I spent uh, three years with a, a Jungian-trained therapist in a private group setting with Dr. Jan Lindgren, and I've come away with an appreciation that the, uh, the dream content is so incredibly important, uh, and it's opened up my life in many wonderful ways for you to do this teaching uh, in an arena, really, that doesn't have a lot of, of, of uh, other people doing this, I think is so valuable. Uh, the question I have for you, Robert, is that we can't really train people to be a tightrope walker 50 feet, 60 feet up in the air. There are very few people that can do that. Most of us, I wouldn't even try to attempt that. But there are other things we can train people for and show them how to do it, and they can do that pretty well. Is, is the dream work that, that, that you've been talking about and writing about, is this accessible for just a few, or is it accessible for many? A very good question, Scott. And before we go into it, let me just say I am a passionate admirer of Jung. You know that. There's a story about a conversation that I think I had with some version of Jung in the afterlife in my new book, Mysterious Realities. I'm not a Jungian. I'm a great, no, Jung himself was not a Jungian. Always a mind in motion. You never settled down with a, with a fixed set of categories or a catechism. Anyway, having said that, Jung was a great liberator of the imagination, and I greatly admire him. And one of the things he couldn't, this is beginning to answer your question, one of the things that he could not do in his time as a man of authority, Herr Dr. Professor Jung, was really to make his patients, because they were his patients, he's their doctor, he's their psychologist, to make his patients aware that they are his equals in understanding everything. They have the potential to understand things for themselves. And finally, they are going to be the final authority on the meaning of their dreams. He could not step back and say, if it were my dream, he had to say in his period what the dream meant according to him. Now, let me answer your question directly. This is for everybody. Dreaming is our birthright. And when I say dreaming, I mean not only what's going on in your sleep dreams, but what might pop up in in-between states of consciousness in that twilight zone. You're not awake, you're not asleep. What might come to you through synchronicity and coincidence popping up like dream symbols in the world around you and in other states of consciousness. We all have access to this material. And I'll say this as clearly and as simply as I can, and I'll slow down to make it absolutely clear. Whatever comes to you in a dream, spontaneously, not asked for, is something it is timely and appropriate for you to pay attention to. You might not like the dream. The dream might seem too trivial or mundane, or it might seem scary. But I can assure you, talking to everybody, 
what your night dreams, your sleep dreams giving you, giving, are giving you is important for you and it is your own direct access to a world of knowledge, healing and empowerment that is waiting for you to become more conscious about. And you can develop a relationship with this without becoming a tightrope walker, without going through a near-death experience. You can begin to cultivate a relationship with your dreams by, in a sense, courting your dreams. What does that mean? You start keeping a journal. You start writing things down. You learn that practice. And you find a way to talk about your dream that is safe and also fun and fairly quick with another friend or a group of friends. And I've invented a process for that called the Lightning Dreamwork Game. It's a quick, fun, four-step process by which we can open a safe space to share our stories and get feedback that is non-authoritarian and guide each other towards action. So I said a couple of pretty important things. The material is there. If you've been closed to your dreams, don't think that is going to be a permanent life situation. I was without sleep, without sleep dream recall for nearly four weeks, Scott, because I went through total knee replacement four weeks ago. And between the pain, the wooziness from the early opioids, the lack of sleep and all the rest of it for four weeks, I was virtually bereft of sleep dreams. Yes, and I didn't like that. Last night, the night before our show, I dreamed a dream. And it's a somewhat frustrating and confusing dream. But I can tell you, I was joyful to have the dreams mm -hmm. back because I know how much is going on in them. If I may say one more thing, I'd just like to affirm the importance of this, adding to what you said very beautifully about it. Most human societies that have known what they've been doing since the beginning of recorded accounts, and I wrote about this in my book, The Secret History of Dreaming. Most human societies that are alive to what matters have valued dreams and dreamers for three reasons. They've understood that in dreams we can contact a source beyond the ordinary daily mind. Call it God, call it nature, call it the ancestors, call it the quantum information field. Dreams give us access to something wiser and deeper than the ordinary self. Call it the big self, as Jung did. Number two, they've understood that dreams show us the future that in dreams we are being rehearsed for challenges and opportunities that lie ahead, and that can help us to do very much better. And number three, they've understood that dreaming has something to do with healing. Dreams might diagnose what's going on inside the body. They might give us fresh personal images we can develop for self-healing. They might show us the state of our soul when we're part of our soul has gone missing. So this is not new material. What happened for a while is that in the Western societies, we lost the dreaming, we lost people who teach us about it, we lost the practice, although simple people in simple situations often still do it quite a lot, even though they have not been validated by what the Brits call the talking classes, by academia or the media, very much for a long time. Uh, uh, Mr. Moss, I, I look forward to the day that uh, we have companies, groups of people that are mulling over a decision and decide to employ active dreaming as one of those ways of acquiring information so they can make a good decision. Absolutely. That's the right vision, Scott. It's my vision, too. I would like to see organizations and community groups of every kind using this kind of stuff because you know what? It gives you access to tools and resources beyond ordinary calculation. And sometimes the dreams of the night can be a corrective to the delusions of the day. I mean, they can be a voice of conscience. They, they well can give said. you an angle, of perspective, well an angle of perspective on what you're doing. And this can be, this, this can save the day in all sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. uh, this is Robert Moss and his brand new book, with a really striking front cover is Mysterious Realities, A Dream Traveler's Tales from the Imaginal Realm. And are, are we talking about this, this place uh, that many people call the Imaginal Realm? Um, 
is this a larger aspect of consciousness? Well, it's, it's, it takes a larger aspect of consciousness to get there, but I would say we're talking about a reality, a real dimension, as real uh, in the view of people who go there as the physical dimension, mm-hmm. which is available and accessible. The imaginal realm is a term for a space, a realm, a reality between time and eternity. Uh, it's a place where you might encounter the enlightened departed, uh, you know, master teachers, master figures from different traditions. It's a place where ideas... Uh, are born and grow in an interesting way. It's a place where human minds, human consciousness, encounters consciousness and intelligence from beyond the human level. What kind of consciousness are we talking about? Well, some cultures would talk about gods or angels or master speakers or creative spirits or whatever. Uh, It's a realm that contains real cities, real palaces, real schools, real places of healing and imagination. And it is beyond our world, but I repeat, it's no less real. There are structures there that have existed longer than probably any modern structure on Earth, maybe as old as the pyramids, maybe as old as Newgrange and Ireland. There are structures that have been there for a long time where people have gone to receive training, healing, and initiation. And you think that I'm talking wackily about this? Well, just go and consult the history of these things. Go and look at the history of creation, where really singularly creative people have got their best ideas, where they think they have been in a visionary state uh, from which they have brought back things that can be manifested in this earth. So I use the word imaginal realm cheerfully to reflect the possibility that we might have access to extraordinary places of healing, guidance, initiation, transformation, and yes, indeed, amusement and entertainment too, beyond the physical plane. Our dreams might take us there. Probably you're going to have to develop the the art of active dreaming, which includes the art of lucid dreaming. But active dreaming, my phrase, is about a bit more than lucid dreaming to become a regular visitor to these realms. But once you become a regular visitor, you're going to find you have access to master teachers. I mean, I write quite openly in my books about my conversations with people like the great Irish poet William Butler Yeats, or recently with Jung and with other people. And if you say to me, well, Robert, do you think that was the individual spirit of Yeats or of Jung? I might say, well, I'm agnostic about that, but I know that whoever this is, whether it's a mask of a greater intelligence or a disguise or a wiser aspect of myself or the personality essence of that deceased great person, I know that extraordinary creative material and revelations have come through. And as a creative person who likes to write and bring new things into the world, I'm grateful. And I know this kind of access uh, is available to people. And it does, this does take some training. You don't get to this without some training. I mean, it's famously said to get excellent at anything, you need 10,000 hours of practice. Yeah. Well, it's true with active dreaming as well. You've got material to start off with. But you're not going to reach, let's say, Olympic level without practice. But I'll say this, Scott. If you're a dreamer, you've got, you know, a lot of your practice is pretty easy because you can do a lot of it in your sleep. And you do a lot of it when you're wandering around with your senses open, paying attention to synchronicity and symbols in the world around you. I have a dream from last night, Robert, that I've been mulling over this morning. Um, Fantastic. In the, in the dream, uh, there is a, a radio show taking place. And uh, there are other people that are hosts, and I don't know that I have a sense of propriety as if it's my show, but somehow I'm observing this. And then a, a woman who I recognize as being a guide of mine, she says, you must intervene. <laughs> then I wake up to use the bathroom. <laughs> 
Okay. It, in my in my three years of dream work with Dr. Lindgren, these are the snippets that I am famous for. Okay. Well, let's let's thank you for sharing. Let's. It's always good to have fresh stuff on the table. Let's let's do a little process with it, if you're willing. Let me just ask you a few simple questions, and this will also give an example of the quick dream sharing method that I teach in practice. So, will you give a title to this dream? What's the name for it? Um, being aware. Being aware. Okay. And what were your first... Yeah, I know you had to go to the bathroom, but apart from that, what were your first feelings when you came out of the dream? Uh, I, I was uh, trying to pinpoint an area that the feminine is saying to me that I must intervene. Well, that's a good thought, but what was your feeling, Scott? What did you feel? What were your emotions? I mean, were you curious? Were you happy? Were you disturbed? What, what, what was the feeling? Uh, I, uh, a heightened state of awareness. I was um, not overly concerned, nothing dangerous, um, but I was not feeling at all complacent. Uh, this was clearly a call to action. So and a so, sense of urgency, maybe. Was that, was that yeah, that would, that's a good, good moniker, yes. Uh, we've already come to a very important point in learning how to talk about these things. A lot, of, a lot of us in Western culture find it difficult initially to express our feeling. But I will say this, the first feelings around a dream or an experience are immediate guidance on where to go with it. So if there's a sense of urgency, I pay close attention to that. That will guide me in my own life and where I'm going to go in terms of working with the dream. So let's do the second big question I ask people. It's the reality check question. It's got two aspects. First of all, what do you recognize from this in the rest of your life? The situation of the other radio host, the studio, if that's what it is, you say you know this female guide. What is familiar to you from the dream in any aspect of your life? Um, I have uh, a personal situation with a, a family member, member that, that is health-directed um, that may be more and more urgent. Right. And the woman who tells you to intervene, this is a, this is a personality that you know in your, in, your, in your psychic life, in your spiritual life? Yes, she's been present many, many times. And the business with other hosts, I mean, if I heard you correctly, there might be a little bit of lack of clarity, if not confusion, about who's running things in this, in this situation. Is that, is that those people or that kind of situation familiar to you where there might be contested or misunderstood issues of control and direction? Is that familiar to you in any way? Two, two males in a broadcast studio, and uh, they were talking. The, the gist or nature of their conversation, I am not aware of. It's as if I am observing this, perhaps through mm -hmm. a window from a hallway, Okay. And uh, then I hear out of the periphery this female guide saying, you must intervene. Yeah. So I, I look at the, 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 you know, if I was to explain this, this setting to a Martian who just got here from the planet Mars, right. that right. These, these two males um, are talking and the words that they are saying are being broadcast to a great many more people. So there are right. conversations being overheard by many, many people. Yes. I and also, you would as a success... Yeah, sorry, go on. There's also a sense, too, that uh, w without being uh, overly political on the show, there's a sense uh, in the country right now of, of a degree of urgency with the um, government shutdown, with the stalemate, etc. Okay. So uh, you're observing these people. I mean, you're a very successful presenter yourself. 
Uh, is it possible that you're trying to understand how they are reaching more people? Would that be part of your curiosity, or are you simply trying to discern what they're saying? Yeah, it, the sense I have is that the message, the the gist of what they're saying, um, is not correct. Okay, that's good. Now let me just ask the other aspect of the reality check, which is what elements in this dream could manifest in the future in some way? Could you literally or symbolically find yourself in a situation like that where you're looking in on these people, maybe because you're trying to understand what's going on or what's going awry in our society? Could could you feel they could could you in the future feel obliged to intervene in some sense as the female guide is saying to you? Could any of this manifest in some way in the future in your life? Certainly, yes. Okay. So do you have a you have a question now about the dream? Where's you you have a sense of urgency? Where's your main curiosity at this point? Is there something you particularly like to know more about? Well, one of my uh, uh, I won't call it a trick, but one of my techniques, Robert, is that hold that and right. say literally in my mind, what what is it that I need to know about this? Right. And then simply to let that go. So your practice is to put the question to a follow-up a follow dream, which you're going to ask for. Yes. Great. I mean, this is, this is dream incubation in a classic form. All right. Now, we've done two of the four steps in my simple game. The first is to get the story with the title. The second is to ask a few basic questions. Third step is I or whoever's discussing the dream is going to say to you, Scott, if it were my dream, I'd think about such and such. This is fundamental from my point of view. This Jung could never do as the authority figure he was in his time in Switzerland. But today, we have to help each other become authorities over the meaning of our own dreams and our own, own lives. So I will never say to people, this is what your dream means. I say, if it's my dream, I think about such and such. Mm -hmm. If it's my dream, given something very interesting and beautiful you said about the female presence, I would think that in the midst of our current complaints, uh, one of our main hopes of getting through is to see the rise of the sacred feminine, the rise of the divine feminine. And if I find myself in the presence of a female guide, I'm going to listen very carefully and I'm going to try to understand what it means when she tells me to intervene. Does it mean to intervene in whatever way I can in, in the broadcast world where so much is crazy? Does it mean intervene in, the, in that personal situation you mentioned where somebody might need help? Does it mean intervene in some other way? Scott, I'm going to have a direct dialogue with them. Okay, I might be able to do that in dreams t tonight. But along the way, between now and dream time tonight, I might sit down and imagine that she is available and put some questions to her and be ready to write down mm -hmm. whatever comes to mind. Mm -hmm. uh, simply attempting to have a dialogue with a dream character in that mode is often very, very effective. There's a stage beyond that and just slightly beyond what you do anyway, just slightly beyond the dream incubation plan you might have for tonight. And that is what I call dream reentry. That's when wide awake and conscious, and in my workshops I use shamanic drumming, but at home I really just use intention and a quiet space. You put yourself in a quiet space, you put yourself in horizontal meditation if you like, you call up the, the image and the feelings of the dream, and you just wish yourself, will yourself, back inside with a question in your mind you'd like to have answered and with a plan to converse with someone or maybe go beyond what you remember maybe hear what's going on and what's being projected from that studio for example so those are all suggestions i would have if it were my dream for my action plan although you might be perfectly fine with the action plan you have already which i think is a great one to come at the dream again tonight and ask you know for a follow-up and to put that in your mind and see what follows 
So, you know, thank you for sharing. I always, I never want really to talk about dreams to people who are not willing to share their own dreams, Scott. So you passed one of my own litmus tests <laughs> for a worthwhile conversation, which I want to hear what your dreams are about if you're going to talk about dreams. And it's a very interesting dream. It might be fragmentary, but it allows for huge avenues of exploration. Yep. It sounds as if you've got your own plan for that. Uh, oftentimes I've found in my life, Robert, that my dreams are like the tip of the iceberg, that I see a little bit of it. And when I begin to work on it, sit with it and allow more of it to come, that there's more from below the surface that comes forward and, and reveals itself. I, I've got a follow-up that, question that I need to ask, yeah. but I need to do my top-of-the-hour break here, Robert. So okay. um, let me do that, and then we'll be right back with a continuation of our uh, conversation. I'm very much enjoying uh, having you as a guest, sir. So uh, stay right there. We'll be right back. This is Robert Moss, the author of multiple books, including Mysterious Realities, A Dream Traveler's Tales from the Imaginal Realm. His portal or entry point is mossdreams.com. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim Shorty and uh, the dreaming population of much of America and the world listening right now. Snowing here in Lincoln, Nebraska. And uh, if you hear some banging around, it's the walks and drive being cleared outside the broadcast studio. We appreciate that, guys and gals. And uh, if you need to get someplace today in Lincoln, Nebraska, just take a little bit more time, plan the route, and you'll get there just fine. Stay tuned for more Exploring Unexplained Phenomena with our special guest, Robert Moss, right after this. Hi dudes and dudettes, it's Carol Griswold from Women's Blues and Boogie on your community radio station, 89.3 FM, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from family owned and operated Butheris Mason and Love Funeral Home at 40th and A Streets in Lincoln. Offering services that allow families to plan ahead according to personal wishes, chapel facilities to accommodate all faiths, and grief support materials for the family following a service. More information is available at 402-488-0934 and online at bmlfh.com. And by... The Haymarket Farmer's Market. Thanking its patrons and vendors for this past season. Vendor inquiries for the 2019 season at 402-435-7496 and lincolnhaymarket.org. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model back. My bigger brother's name is Ray, and Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock in one freezing cold rushing Black Mountain River. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. 
To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. Southeast Nebraska. They're the official music of the Exploring Unexplained Phenomena show. I'm Scott Colborn, and Jim Shorney is here in the studio. Guys and gals, we really appreciate you out there listening live at kzum.org and also to the archive, which is kzum.org slash EUP. Special thanks to Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our good friend and colleague, and Shelley from Canada for their donations of prepaid phone cards. The guests and the conversation are made possible today on this show by their generosity. Rosemary and Shelley, thank you very much. Our special guest is Robert Moss, the author of Mysterious Realities, A Dream Traveler's Tales from the Imaginal Realm. Robert, there was a... Uh, uh, woman that I interviewed many years ago, Diane Kennedy Pike, who wrote the book Life as a Waking Dream. And having been so much influenced by the Jungian tradition, I was really intrigued with uh, Diane's approach. And so this is my question from our pre-break conversation about this dream snippet of mine. Diane says that take the dream interpretation techniques and tools that one knows and apply those to everyday conscious reality. Literally decoding an ordinary life into something extraordinary. So one of the things that I've done, and I want to ask you, sir, for your opinion, when I've had a dream like this, I'm not only aware of the guidance that I receive through the dream content, but I do my best to try to be aware of the guidance I receive during ordinary conscious reality, uh, sort of walking around with a catcher's glove on, waiting for that ball to drop out of the sky. <laughs> I love that analogy. Well, this is exactly right. We need to take dreams more literally and waking life more symbolically. This is how I live. Aggie Dream isn't just about paying attention to night dreams or learning to travel into dreaming shamanically or to do lucid dreaming. It's about walking in greater consciousness in a forest of living symbols. I'm borrowing from the French poet Baudelaire, who, who likened the experience of everyday life to the awakened mind as the awareness of walking in a forest of living symbols. In my native Australia, the first people, the Aborigines, say we live in a speaking land. Everything is speaking to you. The lizard is speaking. The mountain is speaking. In our urban environment, everything's speaking. The logo on that truck is speaking. The vanity plate on that car is speaking. The dog at the corner is speaking. 
So I teach and practice what I call sidewalk tarot. You know, the idea is that the world is throwing tarot cards at us, not just 78 pasteboard images, but countless, uncountable number of images, cards, etc. We've got to work out what they mean, and ultimately, we're going to have to figure that out for ourselves. You can't just look it up in a book. What does it mean if you hear this snatch of music from that particular car on that particular day? You're going to have to develop, develop your own language to understand the omens that the world is putting to you. And the idea of doing dream work with waking life, as the, the ladies you were quoting uh, suggested, that's, that's absolutely perfectly fine. I mean, I do that. I work with stories from waking life exactly the way as I do with dreams. We did a process of dream sharing. We do it exactly the same way with waking experiences, Scott. So you saw something on your way to the office this morning, and that bike was moving in that funny way, and then that cat came out across the street. We will discuss that as if it's a set of dream symbols. And we'll also do this. We will walk our dreams. This perhaps comes back more directly to something you were saying a moment ago. You have a dream. You're uncertain what it's all about. You walk with it. You carry the dream in your mind, and then you see what the world gives you. Mm -hmm. You see what pops up around you. And you see what the world, in a sense, giving you a second opinion, or maybe a first opinion. Mm -hmm. It was all mysterious to you. Our friend Jung said that he was often confused about what his own dreams meant, but that he found that if he walked with them for a while, it would, something would come to him. He talked about circumambulating, walking around and around a certain theme, perhaps a dream, and letting the world give you things. So my practice every day, whether I'm at home or on the road, as I am very often because I travel a great deal and teach this all over the world, is I will look for the first unusual, unexpected thing that enters my field of perception at the start of the day. If I've got a theme on my mind, I will carry that theme. And I will pay attention to the first unusual, unexpected thing that enters my field of perception and be open to the idea that that is a direct response to the theme that's on my mind from the oracle of the universe. And maybe I'll do more than that. Maybe I'll compose a story just as dreams give us narratives. Maybe I'll, I'll write down a series of things that happen in the course of the day. Maybe I'll take the whole course of a day, simplifying it, of course, because there might be too much detail, and look at the course of events in a day as if it's a narrative from a dream. And then maybe, as we do with working series of dreams, maybe I'll look at how the symbols of that day relate to symbols that came up on previous days. And so I'll begin to develop a kind of spiral understanding of life, that certain things recur in a life as they do in dreams. And if you can learn to recognize something that comes up that resembles something that happened previously in a dream or a life, then you might be able to step forward with more consciousness, stepping out of the cycle of dumb repetition into a spiral of awakened and enlivened life. This is Robert Moss, the author of this brand new book, Mysterious Realities, A Dream Traveler's Tales from the Imaginal Realm. Um, and I understood from our conversation that you just experienced a, uh, a knee replacement. And uh, I did. I wish you uh, all the best in that, in that recovery, sir. Uh, how are you doing so far? Well, I'm doing very well. I mean, it's the uh, the surgeon and the physiotherapist almost could not believe how quickly uh, my mobility returned. I did very well on that front. One of the side effects, and it started with the painkillers they give you. I must tell you, Scott, I, I've had an unusual resistance to physical pain most of my life. It probably came out of those boyhood experiences. I've done root canal six times with no anesthetics, no Novocaine, nothing. Dentists can't believe it till I do it. I guess I got a bit macho and overconfident about this, so I was not prepared for the sheer intensity of the physical pain following total knee replacement. So I did the opioid, the opioid painkillers, took myself off them two weeks later, and that was good because I was going around woozy in between bursts of fitful sleep. But I was sleep bereft. I, I was sleeping no more than an hour at a time for most of the last four weeks. The last two days, um, something 
closer to my normal dream function is returning. But I must tell you, my normal dream function is not what most people experience and not what I recommend to anybody. I've always been a polyphasic sleeper. In other words, I don't sleep in one long period. I sleep for a couple of hours, then for another couple of hours. And then if I have time in a day, I'll take a nap at some point and sleep for another hour or two. That's the way I've been since boyhood. So in a sense, I'm better prepared for the effects of this kind of surgery. But the fact that I was getting virtually no sleep meant that I was bereft of sleep dreams. And this becomes troubling to me. But last night, the uh, the drought broke and I recorded a lengthy dream narrative, which, although somewhat frustrating and confusing, is interesting to think about. So I'm going to get on a plane to Europe again in two weeks' time, six weeks after surgery. That might sound crazy to most people, but I think because I'm listening to my body, my body is responding pretty well. So mm-hmm. there's a lengthy, somewhat lengthy, dream-oriented person's response to your generous question. Uh, the, the, uh, the dream content can be so much influenced by as you say, medication, uh, uh, et cetera. And so I'm glad that that's... I think, I, I think, I think the, we have different stories. That there's a shamanic people of Central Asia, the Dawa, D-A-U-R, Mongols. They say everyone has their own road, everyone has their own sky. I think that's true. I think unless we're going along in some groupthink mode, we, we have different stories. One of my stories is I've always found it very easy to get out of the body in one sense or another, Sometimes sometimes tough to stay in the body, to stay rooted and grounded. I think in this period, my body has finally said, Robert, you stay in your body. You know, you're a world-class <laughs> dreamer. Don't worry too much about the dreaming for these weeks. Listen closely to how much movement, how much rest your body needs. So I think my body conspired very understandably in the context of having titanium and plastic put into it uh, to make me stay present to my body. And of course, we can dream in the body as well as outside it. I think that's you know, I look for the story in everything. You probably do, too. I want to know what is what is the bigger story? What is the deeper meaning of this experience? And for me, I think my post-op experiences, which are not exotic in themselves, are, are a teaching for me, re- requiring me to go back to beginner's mind about how I handle pain and how I need to recognize what the body wants. Your your comments about your, uh, your sleep periods reminded me of an old... Uh, uh, European tradition of people going to sleep and then waking up and staying up for two to four hours and then going back to sleep again. And I've always been interested in that. Uh, I wonder if that was the effect of um, heating, cooling, uh, trying to live with the environment, uh, or if, if they felt they gained benefits by doing so you know if you if you went to bed well, uh at at sundown which let's just say eight o'clock right and slept till right. 12 midnight right. and then woke up and you were up right. from 12 until three or four and then went back to sleep from four to eight right yeah well this is actually the natural human sleep cycle i mean that might sound shocking to people these days but this is the way that our ancestors basically slept and woke for most of our history on the planet. I mean, there's been a great deal of extensive research by sleep historians, let's say, done about this. And the picture you just gave was not advanced practices, the way that most people went through the day and the night in two phases of sleep. I mean, you go back to 18th century English literature, you find people referring to the second sleep, implying there's a first sleep and then there's a second sleep. Very good. And there's a, this period of time in between. And before artificial lighting and all that kind of thing, you're not going to be up at the computer. You're not necessarily going to be up reading a book. 
going to be doing other things in that in-between time. I mean, you might be making love, you might be wandering outside and looking at the stars, but very often you're drifting in that in-between state, which sleep researchers call hypnagogia. You're not awake, you're not asleep, you're drifting. And I can tell you from my lifelong experience, that is about the most creative state of consciousness you can be in. You can become a lucid dreamer effortlessly if you can learn to maintain a state of relaxed attention or attentive relaxation in the place between sleep and awake, things will come to you. It's a place when you are highly psychic, highly intuitive. It's a place when you can make creative connections not ordinarily available to you. It's a place when you can hear inner and transpersonal voices and learn which ones are the real and which are the voices you can trust and develop your psychic discernment and find yourself in direct contact with guides from a higher level of consciousness. All of that is available in that in-between space. But since we lost the natural cycles of our early ancestors, this today becomes a practice that you either do or you don't do. For me, it's a natural practice. I am, have always been awake in the middle of the night as long as I can remember. Not something I have to program myself to do. I've never needed an alarm clock. I'm awake when I need to be awake. Uh, well, uh, once or twice, I had the alarm clock because I was going to catch a plane. It might have stood. So that's a slight exaggeration, but I think it's slight. But as you say, in some traditions of practice and in Eastern yoga, it's quite common in, in, in the ashrams and in, in the the lamasaries and the schools of the lamas for people to be told, okay, you'll be awake from this time until that time. You'll be sitting in meditation or doing such and such. But when it becomes dream yoga, then this is recognized as an intermediate state of consciousness, which takes you beyond ordinary physical consciousness and also beyond the ordinary state of sleep and sleep dreams into a heightened state of awareness. I, I, one of the things I say to people who really want to go forward in consciousness, really want to go forward in creativity, is learn to spend more time in the twilight zone between sleep and awake. There you will find solutions. There you will find meaning. There you will find contact with transpersonal and inner sources beyond the ordinary ones. So I strongly recommend uh, having a period like that in your life, but I'm not going to tell people who might be sleep-deprived and having trouble at the office and etc., to, to give themselves a disrupted night. It's a question of what is natural for you and doable for you as you go along. This is Robert Moss, the author of Mysterious Realities, A Dream Traveler's Tales from the Imaginal Realm. Robert, in, in, your, in your journeys, um, have you or do you encounter uh, departed loved ones? Oh, yes, yes. This, and let me say immediately that this is available to everyone. It's available to everyone. It can be a source of incredible healing and clarity and forgiveness across the apparent barrier of death. Let me tell you the, the most important personal story about this as briefly as I can. My father died in Australia a bit over 30 years ago now in 1987. And we'd come together in the years before his death. We, we hadn't been particularly close. He's a very good protective father, but we weren't close. In the last years before his death, we became good pals. In the year after his death, I'm getting shivers as I talk to you, and truth comes with goosebumps. Dad came to me again and again. I'm living in the United States. He died in Surface Paradise, Queensland, with messages for the family. One of them is very urgent. I have to call my mother and tell her that she must contact Rodriguez because he will sort out a living situation. I don't know who Rodriguez is. It's a common name in this country, but it wasn't common, I think, in that part of Queensland back then. I called my mother with Dad's message. I said, Dad says you should contact Rodriguez. She says, Ron Rodriguez, who is he? Oh, he's a real estate agent. Okay, he helped with some things. Well, are you going to call him? I'll call him. Two weeks later, with the help of Rodriguez, she was able to move into the apartment in the retirement community where she was happy and safe for the last years of her life. This is one of many examples 
of how practical contact with the deceased, if they wish us well and we've got things clear, can be in our lives. My father, after that, appeared again and again. He showed me with great delight his transitions on the other side. So I learned firsthand from him about what is available in terms of real estate options, lifestyle, new courses of education, coming to the point where you choose what you're going to do next in terms of another kind of life experience. And then jumping forward many, many years to about three years ago, I'd lost contact with my father and knew that I would lose contact because he told me he's going off somewhere else completely and we won't be talking as often or as easily as we did. Fine. Then I'm in that drifty state, that twilight state between sleep and awake in the early morning, and I find myself up on a high rooftop like the top of a skyscraper. And I'm full of optimism because I'm accustomed to meeting interesting guys in a place like this up above the world. But the person I see here stuns me. I'm shocked because it's my father. I'm not shocked because he's dead. I've been talking to him a lot since he was dead. I'm shocked because I thought he'd gone away. And as soon as I recognize him, looking like a handsome cavalry officer about 30 years old, I'm right in front of him. He puts his finger on my upper lip and he says very simply, quietly, Robert, go to the doctor and have that checked out. Yes, sir. As soon as the office opens, I call the dermatologist. I go in. Yes, I've got a spot of skin cancer, basal cell carcinoma. My general physician had not noticed it. I hadn't thought about it. And I have the surgery, and I have I have the surgery, and today you wouldn't know that I had any problem, and it's something that can be easily dealt with, but also can be easily ignored. My father made sure I did not ignore that message. Now, a psychologizing person might say, well, Robert, that's the aspect of you putting on your father's face. Well, that's a disease marker, to use one phrase from the medical discussion of these things. Fine, 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 Scott, but I'm certain that was Dad who appeared. And when I had the surgery and the plastic surgeon had done his stuff, I raised a glass of single malt whiskey. My father was a Scot by ancestry, and I said, thank you, Dad. Interesting. Do you have a sense, uh, Robert, in your dreaming that you are communicating or being with a presence that many of us call God, Creator, Divine. Is, is that a sense of yours? I've been in the presence of divine beings. I feel I've been in the presence of divine love and divine grace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And certainly those terms are not alien to my experience. I'd probably talk about divine rather than God as a singular noun, but I certainly felt myself in the presence of divine beings, and some of them have names. I mean, I've had relations, shocking to me when they've come about, with figures that are familiar from many different religions. I've had, I was stunned when I had a close encounter with the Archangel Gabriel back in 1987. It started with a vision in broad sunlight of a figure of wonderful sort of congealed light, and I was brought to my knees, and the tears streamed through me like a waterfall, and I wrote a song for Gabrielle, who appeared beautiful as, in a feminine way in the vision. And since then, for example, Gabrielle has appeared to me many times in dreams and visions, almost never asked for, just turned up. And I've had dreams and visions of other deities and angels and angelic figures and, and, and blessed figures who seem to be looking after humanity and helping us, in, in our confusion, move towards the light. So uh, I am a believer in divinity. I'm a believer in a deeper source. I'm a believer in many forms of the divine accessible to humans. I believe that between us and the Godhead, the plerima, the fullness of, of divinity, are many forms of the divine, and that it is we can have a we can have a generic sense of being on the right path of being blessed by divinity. But when it comes to the personalized encounter, I, I'm willing to entertain the idea that there are many roads to God or Goddess. 
and that we will have many different kinds of encounter. And I also like the idea of the ancient Greeks who said, the gods love to travel in disguise. So sometimes mm -hmm. the divine guide can appear in an everyday costume or an unexpected outfit, trying to get our attention in a way that works for us at a certain situation in our life. Robert, this is the, the purpose for my, my question to you, that the, the, the feeling, the hue, the en enveloping presence, the, the fundamental nature, the ground of being of this experience, I believe is positive, benevolent, life-directed, life-affirming, and an aspect of the, the Creator. And the reason why I say that is because there are people in various fundamentalist constrictions that say that if we let our guard down, the boogeyman's going to get us. And so talking about this consciousness that we interact with a lot of these folks would say, be wary, because there's, there's the bad guy waiting to jump you. That's why I think it's so important to have somebody like yourself say that, that this is a process that anybody can be involved in, and um, you're not going to get jumped by a guy in the alley when you do so. <laughs> I love it. I'll say what I said earlier in, in the program, Scott. What I believe, it's not, I don't believe, it's my experience, my observation, of what comes to us in dreams. Authentic dreams, spontaneous sleep dreams, ones we might not have asked for, ones where we're not attempting some astral travel or some shamanic or yogic, you know, feat. There's, there's simple nighttime spontaneous sleep dreams, what comes is timely and appropriate for us to work with. So it gets rid of a lot of this stuff about, oh dear, I'm bogeyman's waiting. If it comes to you in your dreams, it's time for you to deal with it. It's come to you and it's spontaneous and it's fresh and it's authentic and you work out how to deal with it. And then you'll eventually discover once you confront the forms of your fears but beyond your fears there is power and beyond that power there is grace and beyond that grace there is love and that love sustains our world and brings it into being this is what i believe scott this is my truth that it is love despite all the strangeness and craziness and dark times and wild mad madness of our world beyond it all there is a creative purpose a creative purpose that is loving and it is that love that creative love from that creator that brings our world into being and sustains it daily this is my own theology well put, well put, sir. Uh, we'll take our bottom of the hour break and be back with more questions and, and conversation with Robert Moss and uh, his portal and his way of entry is mossdreams.com. You'll also find um, literature, citations for books, including this latest book, Mysterious Realities, A Dream Traveler's Tales, from the imaginal realm. Stay tuned for more conversation with Robert Moss on exploring unexplained phenomena. Hope you folks out there are enjoying the broadcast. Stay right there because there's going to be more right after this. Hi dudes and dudettes. Carol Griswold from Women's Blues and Boogie on your community radio station, 89.3 FM, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD.
Support for This Week in Lincoln comes from the Bourbon Theatre, Crescent Moon Coffee, Duffy's Tavern, Metal Art Coffee and Espresso, and the Zoo Bar. This is live music happening this week in Lincoln. Saturday, January 12th, brings a packed live music calendar, including the Tim Budig Band at Bodega's Alley at 9. Histrionics Diary Party EP release starts at 6 at the Bay with Jocko, Death Cow, and Verse and the Vices. Hope Dunbar is at Crescent Moon at 8. Tragic Martha's album release show starts at 9 at the Zoo Bar with Michelle Ava Blue and the In-Betweens. And Metal Art Coffee hosts folk duo Harper and Lee at noon, then a 7 p.m. show with Shell and the Blue Cats. That is live music happening this week in Lincoln. Hear from brand new KZUM voices from your community before they even have their show on the air. Tune in to Beta Radio every Saturday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on KZUM to hear from new KZUM programmers hosting shows that we hope to bring you regularly very soon. Beta Radio is a practice field of sorts for newly trained hosts to use their new studio skills and take their program idea for a spin. It's something new every week on Beta Radio, Saturdays from 3.30 to 5 here on KZUM. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock in one freezing cold rushing black mountain river. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. And I support that message. The power of the, of the, uh, the printed word, read, you bet. At Colborne Clan, the TV is never on. It's either a book, a guitar, <laughs> sometimes both. <laughs> so great to have you folks joining us this morning in conversation here with Robert Moss. Um, this is a subject that is near and dear to me, folks, because it's part of uh, our lives, the very fabric of our being. And it's another way, I think, that, that we find out more about the world and, and uh, who we are and our relationship to the divine. Just imagine, if you will, that you had this uh, incredible resource that you could go to and say, what, what's a good course of action in the future? What should I be doing right now and a week or months from now? Uh, should I, shouldn't I? Just imagine if you had this great friend that was very knowledgeable you could talk to every day or every night about, about your life. That's the, the sort of stuff that we're talking about. Robert, uh, years ago I owned a, a bookstore and that closed in, in 2005. Um, early on in the career, we had just struck gold and we're doing so well. And I thought about opening a second store 
in Omaha, which is about uh, 60 miles away. And the plan was that maybe we'd relocate to a small city halfway between Lincoln and Omaha and then married in our couple. One of us would do Omaha, one of us would do Lincoln, and we'd just kind of switch off like that. So we did all the cost analysis. We looked at a location in um, the old market. And uh, so I said to my partner, I said, why don't we sleep on this? And just for a week, you know, see what our dreams tell us. You know what happened, Robert, every night? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I had dreams of being chased by um, people out to get me, by animals. I would wake up sweating, um, puffing as if I just jogged uh, an 880. And uh, at the end of the week, it was very clear to me that this was not a good idea. And as soon as I said, let's not open the second store, it was like I took off 30 or 40 pounds off my shoulders. I had a lilt <laughs> back into my step, and I felt great. Yeah. Yeah. This is what we're talking about, isn't of, it? Yes, it is what we're talking about. This is a practic- practical example of what it's all about. When people ask me, what is, this, what is all this about? I'll say to them, look, mate, it's about soul and it's about survival. Both mm-hmm. things. Both things. It's about soul in the sense of remembering more of your life purpose and being able to look at yourself from a larger perspective. You know, dreams hold up that magic mirror to our current actions and attitudes. It can be shaming and humbling what you see in that mirror, but you need to see it, correcting the delusions of the day, as we said earlier. And secondly, dreaming is about survival. In dreams, our intuitive radar comes alive, and we see things at a distance in space and time, and we see how things would work out. And you see, for example, a scenario you don't like, a dramatized scenario, because, Scott, I think, in addition to everything else that's going on in dreaming, each of us has a sort of uh, dream film studio behind the scenes where our personal movie crews uh, are producing dramatic stories to get our attention and educate us about what's really going on in life. So I picture your dream production crew giving you these extra elements, these unavoidable, I mean, unavoidable elements, dramatic, uh, hyped elements to make it clear that you get the message. And I see that in my own dreams and other people's dreams too. I mean, all sorts of things might be going on in dreams. The dreams might be recycling what you were doing yesterday. The dreams might be adventures in a different reality, including places where the dead are alive and so on. But sometimes our dreams, and we're conscious of this, are dramatic production. And when you look at it carefully, you might notice that there is this kind of film production crew doing this. In my new book, Mysterious Realities, I have a very funny story, basically borrowed with permission from a woman, a physician, who is complaining at the breakfast table at one of my retreats because I lead active adventures and this stuff all over the world. She's complaining at breakfast, Robert, why do I keep having the same dream? And she complained that although she got a doctor's license 30 years ago, again and again in her dreams, she was being told she had to go and do the exams, do the medical exams to earn her, her, her license again. And she was very head up about it. She was very agitated. So I made up a story at the table. I said, listen, dear, I think it's like this. You've got this film production crew behind the scenes and they're getting so bored with you because they have to keep playing the same dream because <laughs> you're not getting the message. And threat- there's a walkout threatened on the lot because but the actors and the production crew are so sick of making the same dream. She bursts into laughter and by the end of the breakfast conversation, she knows what she's got to do. She's made the application of the recurring dream to a current life situation and has a plan for going forward. So this, is, this, again, is part of the fun, part of the entertainment, part of the shock, and part of the survival value of dreaming. Mm-hmm. 
Robert, uh, in 1974, uh, with my mother, father, and my girlfriend, I witnessed a sphere traveling in the sky that innately I knew was not a terrestrial vehicle. And I did, as a young man then, uh, over the next day and a half, a lot of phone calls and research trying to find out what this unidentified flying object was. And that piqued a lifelong curiosity in the subject matter. Uh, When you're dreaming, do you ever uh, experience or connect with uh, extraterrestrials or uh, ultra-dimensionals? I think I think I must say, Scott, playing all of the from moment, you want to read my book, Dreamgates. I mean, there are several chapters there very pertinent to this theme. Uh, and one of the chapters includes the instructions for traveling interdimensionally to the Sirius star system in a certain kind of vehicle, constructed of subtle matter on the on the energy plane, but possibly vis- vis- visible to people who have that kind of sight. And it might or might not be similar to the thing that you saw in the sky. It might or might not be an interdimensional vehicle as well as an extraterrestrial vehicle. But you might want to look at that, at that those instructions for a guided journey to, in this case, rather than from another star system using an energy vehicle constructed in a certain way, in the way that I think that interdimensional travelers have done for a very long time. I have no doubt we're not alone in the universe as conscious beings. And of course, we have other conscious beings on the planet other than human, although we tend to forget that. But I'm quite certain we're not alone in this vast universe. I'm quite certain that contact is made from time to time between beings whose home base is in other star systems. I'm not generally terribly sympathetic to people who boil all this down to four types of aliens and this kind of thing. But I know from my own experience and my own far memory of what's been done from different times and places, the travel between different star systems is not exotic not new. It's gone on for a very long time. It's influenced human affairs, often for the good, but not always, because although you and I agree that we want to feel that we are in a benign universe, I would also say, as the ancients understood very well, we live in a field of contending or competing energies. Cicero, the great Roman orator and statesman, said this very succinctly about our relations with beings beyond the human level, with gods, demons, spirits, and others. He said, you know, there are some who are favorable to humans, some who are hostile to humans, and some who are anathema for humans. So, hmm. <laughs> so, so if we live in this thickly populated, you know, multidimensional universe, of course, contact is taking place sometime or other. Your own account reminds me, back in the 50s, we had our UFO craze in Australia, and everybody go out at night looking for UFO, mm-hmm. and I saw a couple myself, and I did pictures of them. We all saw them. Uh, were we at that point? In, in engaging in some sort of mass hallucination? Probably not. But nonetheless, of course, what people are primed to see is often what they do see. That's not that's not minimizing or dismissing the phenomenon. I'm just saying that if we're in a period when everybody is interested in this kind of thing, more people quite likely are going to have sightings and they'll see things in different ways. And sometimes they will confuse probably what is real in the sense of being physical, made of metal and technology, and what is real in the sense of being imaginal or astral or interdimensional, mm-hmm. operating in a way and on a level that, that goes beyond physical reality. Mm-hmm. I think that most of the encounters that are for real and interesting are interdimensional encounters. They may also be extraterrestrial encounters, but I think that things are working in ways that the average human doesn't yet fully understand. I would agree. We have this sense of of travel. You know, when I get in my car and leave the station, it's going to be a fairly linear, hopefully safe, between here and my home. 
Uh, but when we speak of going into other dimensions, the, the idea of travel from A to B uh, is, is out the window. And, you know, it's, it's something that I can't fully explain, but the fact that I can't explain it fully doesn't negate the fact that it's happening to many people and has happened, you know, for uh, many hundreds of years. Uh, it has a. I think that the last chapter in Dreamgate it, it looks at that. It looks. I mean, I started as a historian in terms of work and pay and all. I started as a junior professor of ancient history, and I've always been interested in the history of these things. And when you go through the history, mm-hmm. you'll find that humans have recorded since forever encounters with beings that we can call extraterrestrials or interdimensionals. They've seen them in different ways. They've seen them and tagged them as gods or angels or demons or this or that. The, the, the term for what we might call the UFO might be the mandala or the chariot of the god, the chariot of fire. It might be something else, the vimana of the Hindus. So there's a whole huge history of human observation and belief that it's possible to fly around in some kind of vehicle between dimensions, between star systems. This is not new information. Uh, because I guess I have a mythic imagination, I tend to perk up and pay more attention when you give it to me in mythic vein than when you give me greys or insectoids or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just a matter of aesthetics. But <laughs> I get more interested if you describe something to me like the vehicle in which one of the Anunnaki of ancient Mesopotamia might have been traveling, some kind of solar-winged disc, or give me some which might, to a different eye today, look like a conventional UFO. I don't know. I mean, we're turned on by different things. I've always been interested in this, Scott, but I have a mythic imagination. So when you give it to me from the past or from the future, you know, in the form of the, the chariot of fire or the or the vimana, I'm paying more attention. Uh, Robert, at the end of our program, it's been my habit to uh, quite literally turn the microphone over to the guest and allow them to speak from their heart and uh, with their soul present to my audience. Uh, Robert, uh, what are your hopes and dreams now for today and for the future, and please uh, close with really anything that you wish my listeners to hear, sir. Well, I dedicated my life to rebirthing a dreaming society. I mean by that a place where it's okay and encouraged to share dreams in every sense, dreams of the night and dreams of life, anywhere, anyway, with any group, where all of this, with the understanding that dreams rehearse us for the future, dreams put us in touch with soul and a higher self, and dreams might be part of our healing. So this becomes available to everybody. And so it becomes a corrective in more lives to those delusions of the day we've talked about repeatedly. In this cause, I founded my own school. It's a very informal school, but nonetheless, I teach teachers. We now have teachers of active dreaming operating in 21 countries. My books on active dreaming are in in 21 languages. I teach these things, not just workshops and lectures, but depth training for teachers of active dreaming in many countries. I teach in Barcelona. I teach in Prague. I teach in Romania. I teach in Seattle. I teach all over the map. I don't teach in Nebraska, though, you know. Scott, your state has great history in relation to this because of the of the of the uh, of the convergence of John G. Neihart, Nebraska's great poet, and Black Thank Elk, you. the great Lakota Sioux, the great Lakota, Lakota Sioux elder and visionary leader, and they came together because of Neihart's dreams. When Black Elk, Black Elk heard Neihart's dreams, he talked in a way he had refused to talk to any other white guy. So that is a big dream story from Nebraska. I read a blog article about it, and actually, I was honoured received the John G. Neihardt Award for my historical novels at the State University of New York. Congratulations, uh, and his, sir. And, and his granddaughter came to, came to the, uh, to the ceremony. So I have that connection with Nebraska. 
So, uh, and I know that because of Nyhart and Black Elk, there is a great Nebraska story about the importance of dreaming and how it connects connects us with the sacred. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for taking time to be with us uh, uh, in the midst of this this convalescence for your knee replacement. And uh, I wish you, sir, many happy and interesting tomorrows. Thank you, sir, for your time. It was a delightful conversation, Scott. You are a dream host. Thank you so much. And let me say to everybody listening, may your best dreams come true and may you remember, remember them. Robert Moss, our special guest this morning, the author of multiple books. I'm going to have to check out Dream Gates that Robert mentioned for sure. Mysterious Realities is the brand new book. And uh, it's a collection of travelers' tales from the imaginal realm. Very interesting book. I've enjoyed reading that. Our guest next week, let's flip the page here and see. We've got Peter James Haviland. He's a private investigator an advanced certified clinical hypnotherapist with 33 years in the business of parapsychology and forensic hypnosis. Two weeks from today, Dave Spinks, West Virginia Bigfoot. Three weeks from today, Joe McQuillan, my search for Christopher on the other side. As a reminder, our guests today were brought to you in part through Donations of prepaid phone cards by Rosemary Ellen Guiley and Shelley from Canada. We thank you very, very much for your support. And thousands of people today can listen and then later, of course, through the archive program through your generosity. Thank you so much. Speaking of archive, uh, I was there last night, looked over the website, and things are going well. It's uh, easy to find. It's kzum.org slash EUP. Available and, on a computer or smartphone near you. And that goes clear back to 2017. And then before that, before that, we have another website that goes clear back to 2005. Wow. This is all free of charge. And we thank you very much for making use of that. I hope it's of some benefit to you when the, at, the, at the end of the day. Jim, what do you have planned for the rest of the weekend? Uh, try and survive, <laughs> make, make it home intact. And, it's still uh, snowing. Deal with the snow. Uh, snow is forecast to end for us between 3 and 6 p.m. with uh, maybe 9 inches. The whole front moved more north, mm-hmm. and as you said off mic, it tended just to kind of sit. Yeah, it just kind of sat over us for and, a while. Uh, so and this is one of our yeah. biggest snows that we've had in years. It's moved off to the east. Looks like uh, Cass County is getting the brunt of it right now, but it's still lightly snowing here. And I'm, I'm so appreciative of this wonderful moisture that we got. Uh, my my farmer friends are just jumping for joy that we got the snow cover. As are the the snow plowing contractors, as we discussed earlier. Now I've uh, I've got some big limbs that fell off my huge huge pine tree. Luckily they didn't they didn't hurt anything in their fall. So uh, this next week, if you want to do some uh, lumberjack stuff, come on over because the way I do lumberjack is I don't use chainsaws. I use the old fashioned carpenter saws. Wow. So uh, I think I'll pass. We'll get it all chopped up, and we'll have it ready just as soon as that snow gets off of it here. And Vic is here. Yeah, we've got uh, our friend Vic. He's going to bring Mesoterra your way here shortly. He made it intact and undented. <clears throat> Let's see. The rest of my day, I'm going to grab some lunch, 
and uh, I'm going to reflect upon our conversation with Robert Moss today and do some more reflecting on that dream I talked about. And maybe I'll have some more information for you next week. But I know for certain that tonight when we all go to sleep, we're all going to go back into that imaginal world. And I wish you much joy and uh, wonderful adventures. I'm Scott Colborn and Jim Shorty, exploring unexplained phenomena. Until next week, walk in beauty.